Joe last week, uh, introduced the series, and it runs not until Christmas, uh, but till Easter. And as we've already heard, alongside the Sunday sermons, we're encouraging everyone in church to do two things. One, read the book, Everyday Supernatural. Now, hands up who is reading it or has already read it and intends to read it. And we're hearing some brilliant things just as a result, some great encouragement just from people reading the book and starting the uh, journey group study with that. And the other thing, as Kev's already said, is we would love everyone to sign up for the Holy Spirit Outpouring Ministry Day on Saturday the 11th of March. Uh, and, and Chloe said last week when she was baptised that it was the Holy Spirit Away Day amongst all of the Alpha Course that made the biggest impact on her. And that day was so powerful when uh, Joe, Vicky and I, we, we'd sort of organised that. And when we were there, we just looked at each other and said, we've got to do this for the whole church. So uh, Vicky is taking names at the end of the service. Please, free of charge, lunch provided, outpouring of God. What more can we say? Um, but today's sermon is fanatically following Jesus and immediately that might put some of you off but Christianity is not a spectator sport. Um, last week when Joe was explaining passion he talked about football. Well he actually talked about Warsaw but we'll let him off with that and uh, it's quite common <laughs> another one there these days it's quite common to be fanatical about sport that's where the word fan if you're a football fan that's where the word fan comes from from the word fanatic and being fans of a movie or a movie star is absolutely fine being a fan of a tv show well that's acceptable do you know you can even be a fan of a cookery program like the great british bake-off yeah, you can, and that's okay. But being fanatical about Jesus. Well, let me tell you, society wants to dampen any hint of you being fanatical about your faith. You see, society can tolerate your faith as long as you keep it to yourself. If you're fanatical about your faith in this day and age, chances are that you'll be called mad. People will think you've lost your mind. But don't worry, you'll be in good company. They said the Apostle Paul's great teaching had made him crazy. Jesus' followers, even his, mother's, his mother and his brothers, thought he'd lost his mind. And the Pharisees thought he was possessed by the devil. Now, Jesus wasn't possessed by the devil. But we do have an enemy. And if Satan can't prevent us from having a faith, let me tell you, he is perfectly okay with a lukewarm faith. John Wimber once said that faith was spelt R-I-S-K. And risk challenges a lukewarm faith. When we fanatically follow Jesus, we find that our faith and our willingness to take risks increases so the enemy 
opposes a fanatical faith at every single step because he knows just how dangerous such a faith is to his kingdom of darkness. And let me tell you, I want to be dangerous and I want you to be dangerous to his kingdom of darkness. Don't you? Yeah. So today, I want to follow and focus on three postures and a practice of fanatically following. And we find these in verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. Three postures, walking, standing, sitting, and a practice, meditating. When we get those three postures and a practice right, we are dynamic, we are strong, we are firm, and we are blessed. So let's look at them together. Posture one, walking. Now this is our active part. This is the bit that depends on us. We choose which path to take, who to walk in step with and who to follow. And for the Christian, this should be Jesus. It should be Christ. As soon as you decide to follow Jesus, you become his disciple. And I know that most of you know this, but if you follow Jesus, you're a disciple. And if today you're not Jesus' disciple, can I very respectfully ask you to consider the state of your salvation, even whether you're saved? Because disciples are not just special people in the Bible. You and I are meant to be disciples too. Now, uh, Kevin and I have done a lot of work around apprenticeships. And probably the best modern equivalent to a disciple is an apprentice. Now, a modern apprenticeship in our current culture isn't quite the same that an apprenticeship used to be 100 or two years ago in, in, in the UK. Being an apprentice today means that you do a bit of study, you go to college, you work for an employer for a few hours and get some work experience, and then you go home and watch TV and eat your food and, 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 and carry on with your normal life. But it hadn't used to be like that. Uh, Vicky and I watch a TV programme called Who Do You Think You Are? Anybody can confess to watching that TV programme? Oh, confession's good for the soul, isn't it? Do, do you like that programme? It's great, isn't it? If you haven't watched it, a celebrity, with the help of a team of genealogists, historians and TV presenters, trace their ancestry and family tree. Now, I don't know whether you saw this, but in one recent episode, the celebrity had an ancestor who, at seven-year-old, had become an apprentice. Now, this young lad, th think about this, this young lad at seven years was handed over to a master craftsman. And the parents had to sign a legal contract to say that until the age of 16, that boy legally belonged to the craftsman. Effectively, the master craftsman adopted this apprentice. And the apprentice would now 
live in the master's house. He would eat with the master. He would sleep in the master's house. He would learn from the master and he would serve the master. The master, in turn, would teach his craft to the apprentice and the apprentice would imitate the master's ways and become like the master. The apprentice was not lawfully allowed to leave the master until his time of training was complete. And I don't know about you, but this old-fashioned pattern of apprenticeship seems very much close to the discipleship pattern. We are adopted into God's family. He makes a covenant with us, a legally binding contract, a promise sealed in Jesus' blood. And our apprenticeship to Jesus begins. Can you see how Christianity isn't just for a few hours on Sunday? Certainly it's not meant to be. So who are we walking in step with? Who are you really following? Are you on the narrow and straight path that leads to blessing? Or have you taken the broad and crooked path that ultimately leads to destruction? Verse 1 of our psalm said, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. Another translation says, Blessed is the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, who does not follow ungodly paths of thought. Now, this doesn't mean that we should completely shut ourselves off from anyone who doesn't have a faith. Jesus spent time, most of his time, with sinners, with those who didn't know God. In fact, he said it was for these people that he had come to the world. And he calls us to do the same. But it does strongly guide us about who we take advice from. Whose thinking we follow. Whose values we adopt. And that's the people we meet face to face. But it's not just that. It's the soap operas we watch on TV. It's the films we take in. It's the advertising that permeates our society. It's the books we choose to read. All of these soak into our soul. You see, people can be ungodly or godly. They can be of the flesh or of the spirit, the Bible says. In Romans 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. But you're in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ. Romans 8 goes on to say in verse 14 that those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. So being led down our path by the Spirit, following the Spirit, is all about our identity. It's about our adoption as God's children to sonship or daughterhood. And the Spirit testifies then that we are God's children. How amazing. Can you see that Christianity isn't meant to be a casual spectator affair? So let's be careful which road we're walking down, who we're walking with, and most important, who we're following.
In Jesus' day, there was a rabbinic blessing. If you were following your rabbi, your teacher, your master, so closely down those dusty paths, then you would get covered in your rabbi's dust. So let me declare over Junction 10 today that blessing. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi's feet. So that was walking. Let's look at posture two, standing. And there are two aspects of standing I'd like you to think about. Standing firm and standing before. Now, standing firm is a really important biblical principle. It's a posture of strength. Whereas walking depends on us, standing firm partly depends on us. We choose to stand, but in standing, we rely on God. The key to our attitude, especially when it comes to the enemy, is contained in that one word, stand. It's expressive of our posture as well as our place of triumph. Ephesians 6 verse 11, put on the full armour of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians 6.13, therefore put on every piece of God's armour so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing firm. Philippians 4 verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. And finally, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 15, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught. How many of us here today need to stand firm? You're facing something, you've done everything that you can, and now we stand. And as we stand firm, we acknowledge the battle is not ours, but the battle is the Lord's. But there's this other type of standing, standing before, standing before God. And this is serious stuff. The Bible says we will stand before the mercy seat of God at the end of our life to be judged. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or for the evil we've done in this earthly body. Now, that's at the end of our lives. But while we live, we can practice standing before God in his presence. And we can only stand in his presence by his grace. Jude 1, verse 24. He is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. We stand by grace in awe of our Heavenly Father. And we sing that song, don't we? I stand, I stand in awe of you. But I wonder, how often are we really in awe of God? When was the last time 
you stood in awe of God and really stood before him in his presence. Because there's another place that we stand. We stand before the cross. The invitation to stand before the foot of the cross is an invitation to the cruciform life, to be pressed into the likeness of Christ as you embrace the call to die to self. It's only through the cross of Christ and the blood of Jesus that we have permission to come and stand in righteousness before the throne of God. And this is standing in the narrow way, standing firm and standing before God in his presence. So we've done walking, we've done standing. Posture three, sitting. And the word sit, for me, is the quintessential essence of a true Christian experience. The Bible says, God has made us to sit with Christ in heavenly places. And I think every Christian has to start their spiritual life from that place of sitting, that posture of rest. And I think today we've lost the art of sitting. On the rare occasion when we sit still, it's often because our attention is on a screen or a device of some sort, a phone or a computer or a TV. Uh, we sit when we're behind the wheel of a car or behind a desk at work. But how often do you just sit? Just abide in the presence of God. Christianity begins not with a big do, but with a big done. It says God has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So we're invited right at the very outset, through grace, to sit down and enjoy what God's done for us. Not to set out and try and attain it for ourselves. And the psalm says that we're not to sit in the way of mockers. And, and this word mocker probably doesn't have the right connotations for today. So when you look at that, what it means is we shouldn't be scornful or criticising the people or the things of God. We shouldn't be being sarcastic or hostile. We shouldn't be fault-finding. We shouldn't be pessimistic or cynical. Because these are the postures that ultimately are barriers to blessing. Rather, sitting should be a posture of intimacy. Can you think about how many times the Bible says that Jesus sat and reclined with his disciples around a table having a meal? And the Berean Bible has a lovely translation of John 13.23. Now, if you don't know, John 13.23 is when Jesus is celebrating the Passover supper the last supper before his walk to Calvary and he's celebrating it with his disciples and the Berean Bible says this there was reclining one of his disciples whom Jesus loved in the bosom of Jesus what a great picture to be reclining in the bosom 
of Jesus. And so sitting is a posture of intimacy, but it's also a posture of authority. In the synagogue, Jesus, at the start of his ministry, opened the scroll, read from Isaiah, and sat down. And we often miss this, but the seat that Jesus sat in was the place of ultimate authority as a preacher in the synagogue. Uh, last year, through my work at university, I was invited to the 99th Bishop of Lichfield's installation and enthronement. Sounds very posh, doesn't it? And a poignant part of the ceremony was when the new bishop sat in the cathedral. Now, a cathedra is a Latin word for seat, and it's symbolic of a type of throne. That's why it was called an enthronement. And before the new bishop sat down, he explained that a professor, and we've got a professor with us today, Professor Phil Begg, a professor, which is the highest rank of an academic in university, is said to hold a chair. So Phil Begg's got a chair. He's sitting in it now, but not that chair, a different chair. Because the chair is the seat of learning and a symbol of authority in your subject. And if you think that's not to do with the Bible, well, why don't you think back to the two disciples, the sons of thunder, who asked Jesus, well, actually, they weren't that brave. They got the mom to ask Jesus if they could sit at his right and at his left when Jesus was seated on his throne. They understood authority of sitting with Jesus. This idea of a seat, a chair, a throne has deep symbolic significance of authority. And as co-heirs with Christ, we have this same authority. Do you get that? We have this authority. And it's critical for us to remember. But sitting is also a posture of weakness. When you're walking or you're standing, you can defend yourself, you can fight. When you're sitting, it's a lot harder to defend ourselves. We can't fight too well when we're seated. But the Bible says that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. So sitting isn't just a posture of authority, it's a posture of humility. And just bringing that back to this idea of sitting as intimacy, when Jesus visited Martha and Mary, what did Mary do? While Martha was busy making all the preparations, she sat at the feet of Jesus. What a beautiful picture of intimate learning. And when we're facing something tough, when we have a big decision to make, a time of sitting is often required to determine the direction that we should go. Sitting still Letting your mind and body and soul settle is essential so that you can hear the gentle leading of the Spirit. And I know that the idea of inactivity, when we're faced with challenge and the whole of your being wants to do something, is alien to us. 
But when making crucial, critical decisions, it's more important to sit and be than it is to stand up and do something. And finally, on this sitting, I want us to think about sitting as feasting. Psalm 23 verse 5 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. When we sit at the wedding table of Christ, it will be a posture of celebration. At the end of time, we will be invited to this feast to sit at the wedding banquet with the master Jesus. And I wonder today, are you sure of your invitation? Do you have your invitation? So that's the three postures. A practice, meditating. Verse 3, whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Um, the word translated law here is the Hebrew word Torah. Can you all say Torah? Torah, brilliant. It's got a very rich meaning. It means teaching, it means instruction, it means precept, it means command. And so at one level, I would suggest that in the Old Testament reading of this, it's about reading your Bible, it's about praying, it's about meditating, it's about marinating in and chewing on Scripture. And that's good. But let me show you something beautiful that happens when we read this from a New Testament perspective. Can I do that? So, from a New Testament perspective, Jesus said that he had come to fulfill the law. Okay? Bear that in mind. Jesus said he'd come to fulfill the law. He also said the greatest of the commandments of the law was to love God and to love your neighbor. So love was the greatest commandment of the law. And Jesus also said to the Pharisees that they searched the scriptures to find Christ, but, but we don't have to search the scriptures to find Christ. We have the living word of God, Jesus living in us. Is that worth a hallelujah or an amen? And the Apostle Paul tells us that this side of the cross, we are no longer slaves to the law, but we live under the freedom of God's grace. So if I put all that together and put it back into this psalm, we might say, blessed is the one whose delight is in the living word, Jesus who soaks in his grace and rests in the presence of his love day and night. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? Being in the presence of God, the living word, turning your eyes upon Jesus, filled with his spirit, or as Brother Lawrence once said, practicing the presence of God, abiding with him and in him, in his grace and his love. So the title of this talk was Fanatically Following. And the dictionary says that to be fanatical 
is to be filled with an excessive and single-minded zeal, obsessively concerned with something. Have you ever been head over heels in love? Husbands, put your, wife, put your hands up quick. Wives, you can put your hands up as well, yeah. <laughs> if you have, you know what it's like to be filled with an excessive, single-minded zeal obsessively concerned about the object of your affections. Jesus came to proclaim a gospel telling us that at the centre of this universe is a God who is love. Jesus is so awesome, so amazing, so wonderful, that if you truly get to know him, really spend time with him, you can't help but love him in that same obsessive way. And if there's only one thing I want you to take from today, it's this. Fall madly in love with Jesus. Follower of Christ, are you completely in love with Jesus? Or are you like the believers at Ephesus? You've forgotten your first love. Has your passion turned lukewarm? Now, Vicky and I have done a lot of uh, work over the years uh, supporting couples whose marriages needed some care and attention and some nurturing. And I can guarantee that there are some basic things that we can do if our love needs to be rekindled. And I can actually use Psalm 1 to talk about that. So the first thing we need to do if we need to rekindle our love is we need to walk together. Spend time again doing the activities that you used to love doing together. Carve out quality time for fun, enjoying each other. Number two, stand together. Become each other's greatest fans. Appreciate each other again. Focus on your shared values. Number three, sit together. Properly talk and communicate deeply with each other. Work out those areas of conflict together. And meditate. Pray together. Grow spiritually together. Spend quiet time alone together. Now I'm talking about marriage, but as Paul said in Ephesians 5 verse 32, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So by all means apply those things to your marriage, but also to your relationship with Jesus. Walk with him. Spend time doing things you love in his presence. Stand in worship and adoration of him. Focus on him. Sit with him. Talk with him. Listen to him. Meditate on his word in the secret place in silence. So in conclusion, this fanatically following talk had a subtitle. Three postures and a practice. But it also carries a promise. The promise of blessing. The very first word of Psalm 1, blessed is the one. We gain greater and greater blessings as we adopt the postures towards God of walking, standing, sitting, and we practice meditating. Then, as it says in verse 3, we are planted we are fruitful, we are resilient, and we prosper. That person is like a tree 
planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. So, to end, let me ask you, what are you fanatical about? Who are you following? The band's going to come up now, if that's okay.